the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is indeed Elna Schutz and this is the Science Inside. Last week, Friday, something very exciting happened in South African science that has been in the making for over a decade. If you've kept an eye on the headlines, you probably will have seen about this. The meerkat radio telescope was launched in the middle of the Karoo outside a small town called Canaveran in the Northern Cape. These 64 radio telescope dishes are worth 4.4 billion rand, my friends, and will form part of the square kilometer array. The SKA, once fully in swing in the 2020s, will be the world's biggest and most powerful instrument of its kind and span thousands of dishes over several countries, including Australia, Botswana, Kenya, Zambia. There's quite a long list there. And the meerkat will form part of this impressive, unique project and hopefully reveal all kinds of things. It has already started, in fact, including possibly the origins of life and galaxies. We're talking much higher resolution of images, more sensitivity and much faster mapping of the skies than any other current comparable telescope if you love space or you just want to know more about what's out there and how beautiful our universe is this should be exciting um, to you even though it is very interesting just on a national economic and social level so just for a minute try to imagine it with me the middle of the Karoo where it's quiet you can see for miles and the big night sky stretches out over you and it might look like a field of white mushrooms from far away but I imagine each dish is quite impressive up close because it's as high as a three-story building just one of them and they rotate to scan the sky and reveal its secrets better than your or my eyes ever could it's such a wonderful thing and we are going to have a closer look at this amazing feat of science today in our main story we speak to dr fernando camillo who is the chief scientist at the square kilometer array in south africa he is going to just tell us a little bit more about the meerkat and what exactly they've already found and are finding um hoping to find in in the future then in the middle of the show we always like to have a little bit of fun with unscience where we look at some ridiculous research today it is a story about cockroaches that is apparently so strange so shocking that I myself have been kept in the dark about this. Can you believe our producer Bridget is going to come in and surprise us all on this one? And I'm pretty sure it's going to be slightly disgusting, but fascinating. She has kept it secret from me so that I am properly shocked. And you hear my full reaction. I'm already grossed out and I don't even know what's involved. So listen in for that one. And then later in the show, we look at how cosmology and African people are linked. And we will hear insights as to where really concepts of astrology are derived from and whether cosmology does have anything to say about our lives that's all on the show and we will get into some science news before we get into those beautiful stories but you can 
catch us on social media if you want to tell us anything you want to maybe tell us what do you think about the meerkat ask us questions we do have those experts with us today so just send them through on facebook and on twitter as vow fm v-o-w just make sure you use that hashtag science inside to make sure we can find your tweets or your facebook posts and then the whatsapp line as always zero eight four zero seven eight four nine one two and if you miss anything or you want to listen again the podcast of the science inside is up on itunes as well as our website vits dot journalism forward slash science nice and easy but Let's get into the show. Let's get into the science news. This week's science headline. And I have the wonderful Bridget Pere with me in studio to bring us some science news. How are you, Bridget? What do you have for us? I'm great, thanks, Elna. And this week we are talking about rats and mice and humans and how they fall victim to a theory called sunk cost fallacy. Okay. So, Elna, have you ever stuck to a, to a decision simply because you had invested too much time, money, and effort in it, and the only logical thing you can think of is just to stay put? Yes, absolutely. I'm sure I've done that. Even if you've made a bad decision, even a bad retail decision, you didn't like the dress in the first place, but it was so expensive and you really needed it. And now you wear it, even though you don't really like it. I get that. I'm there. Sure. An experiment conducted by the University of Minnesota Medical School explains this behavior of committing to wasteful or expensive behavior like continuing to wait in a very long line just because you had already waited for such a long time. And this has baffled psychologists and economists. This trait has generally been observed in humans but recently scientists have noticed that this trait also is in mice and it's known as the sunk cost fallacy Mm -hmm. all three species including the humans (laughs) were subject to unique testing conditions humans were given a web gallery and were told how the delay would be and rats and mice were put in a maze with four food delivery locations Okay, so how would this experiment show this behavioral pattern between the three subjects, especially because they're doing slightly different things? Rats and mice were also given a delay time before they could get to their food. So what do, what this does, it allows the subject to co- subconsciously answer questions like, how long am I going to wait for this video to load? And in the that's in the case of humans. And uh, for mice, it would be, how long am I willing to wait for a particular food pellet? Now, each subject had two decisions. First, when the delay was given without a countdown. And the second, when the offer is accepted, but the subject has the option of quitting during the countdown. And what scientists observed was that each subject was willing to stick to their decision the longer they waited. Ooh, so it's like I've already waited. Why, if I leave now, then I'm giving up on all that waiting, so to say. But what about the very first choice that they had? Well, it turns out that there wasn't a countdown. All three subjects hesitated before accepting or rejecting the offer because they wanted to make extra sure of the decision they were already making. And this means that all subjects' deliberation time and commitment to a decision depended 
on specific economic factors, in this case, time. Okay. The experiment further shows that mice and rats use neurological decision-making processes similar to those of human beings. Okay, I hear that. But how reliable are these results considering that I, as a human do have a lot more decision-making capacity than a rat that really just wants food any any which way. Wow, Elna. <laughs> but sure, I hear you. The tests were ran between three different labs and the same economic gain was given, uh, was given to all species. So it's safe to say that these results are true. Okay. It shows that by allowing all the subjects to play the same game inside on how the different parts of the brain makes different types of decisions, there is an evolutionary history to the flaws that makes us humans. Okay, I hear you, but that still doesn't that still doesn't make the queue in the grocery store go quicker, Bridget. <laughs> yeah, or any shorter. <laughs> All right. And um what do you have for us this week in your news story? It comes from a couple of sources. It's been all over the place. Um, but one of the the big sources was the conversation. And you might have heard about this already. It's also a space story. A meteorite has been found in Botswana's central Katahari game reserve. And the reason I'm mentioning this is it's a pretty unique story. These are fragments from the asteroid 2018LA, that's the name. And usually these little bits of space rock falling to Earth really surprise us. There's a big flash of light. You might have seen videos of this. There is a video of this specific asteroid online, actually. But here's the thing. This time, the scientists knew this would happen a whole eight hours beforehand. A scientist in Arizona identified um, the asteroid or the meteorite before it entered Earth's atmosphere. And then other scientists documented the fall and the retrieval. They had to calculate exactly where it would land and then actually find it, which is quite difficult. And this whole process has only happened once before successfully, although there have been in total three cases where the meteorite has been expected. So Alexander Proyer and Fulvio Franchi from the Botswana International University of Science and Technology did this work as well as various other teams including NASA and someone from right here at Fitz University. So what can scientists learn from these fragments? Do they just want to keep this as a souvenir in their office? <laughs> like a little space rock when people come in? Yeah, and just to brag, you know. <laughs> I found a meteorite. I would brag about that. <laughs> I really would. Um, probably, yes, I want to brag. But actually, um, meteorites can tell us so many different <laughs> different things. And it's very important to study them. So um, they can be made up of stone, metal, carbon. And those materials, I found this so impressive, can date all the way back to 4.5 billion years ago to the birth of our solar system. So that's the kind of material that we can't find on our planet. So it can tell us things about those planets and how they were formed. Sometimes it can also be bits of Mars or the moon that scientists can now study without having had to send a mission. If you think about getting a little bit of moon rock, getting it back here is quite tricky. And this is just falling from the sky for us. But there's something else, planetary defense. 
So the truth is that an asteroid way bigger than this one could head our way and we wouldn't be able to do much about it. So it could hit straight in Joburg and we, you know, we couldn't stop it. So studying meteorites like this one and how exactly it entered our atmosphere could give us clues as to, you know, just helping us plan in case those kind of scenarios do come one day. It happened to the dinosaurs. It can happen to us. Sure. So it's not a case of finders, keepers, losers, weepers type of thing when it comes to space rocks. Congratulations. You have a meteorite. No, uh, I wish, but the meteorite legally needs to be given to the National Museum in Botswana um, because it, it, it counts as something that belongs to, to the government. And there are all kinds of procedures in recovering the fragments. Plus, just the logistics of spending days in a game park because that's where it landed full of lions and elephants trying to look for a very particular stone in a possible area of about 200 square kilometers so when it entered our atmosphere uh, the meteorite was between three to five meters in diameter but then it splits into lots of tiny pieces and the ones that you'll see on social media would easily fit into your hand so you're looking for something very small in an area full of rocks Oh, something like a diamond. Oh. <laughs> yeah, well, thankfully they did find this one um, and we're very proud about it. It was a big success, but very, very interesting. We go now from one space thing to another as we finish up our, our science news and jump into the full Science Inside show. We're going to be talking about the meerkat. No, not the cute little animal, but the very big radio telescope that is named after it. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Hello and welcome to the show. Remember, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter as VowFM. Just make sure you use that hashtag, Science Inside, to join in our conversation. You may know that last Friday, eyes of people around South Africa and the world were focused on the middle of the Karoo, outside a small town called Canaveran in the Northern Cape. The Meerkat radio telescope was unveiled. It is made up of 64 dishes and it will make some great science possible. In fact, it's already started and eventually it'll form part of the square kilometer array or the SKA. This is an amazing project for the country and science. So we want to jump into some of those details with Dr. Fernando Camillo, who is the chief scientist at SKA-SA, directing the science program um, of the SKA, but specifically also the Meerkat. Welcome, Dr. It was, it's so good to have you on the show with us. Thank you very much. My pleasure. And congratulations on the launch, first and foremost. Thank you so much. We're very excited there. It was great. So maybe start with a little bit of a description for us. I've heard I've heard a field of mushrooms. I've heard all kinds of analogies. But what does the meerkat practically look like? What does it feel like to be out there? Yeah, it's quite striking because if, especially if you drive up, you go through the Karoo landscape, which is very stark, you know, and, and beautiful. And suddenly you arrive at this place and you see all these things that look like mushrooms, a field of mushrooms, 64 of them, except as you get closer, you realize that each of these mushrooms is about five stories tall. It has a 13 and a half meter diameter dish, you know, aluminum panel dish uh, on it. And they're not mushrooms, they're radio telescopes or radio dishes, each of them. uh, Put together, they combine to make uh, one of the most powerful radio instruments in the world. Mm. So... 
We've heard a little bit about the SKA. Um, I described the project um, in a little bit of detail earlier. But tell us again why it's so important for South Africa specifically as a country, both scientifically and in general. Well, so SKA is, is, is the project, the plan to build the world's most powerful, largest radio telescope. And that's an international project uh, currently with 11 countries, of which South Africa is one. And uh, this, this has been going on, the planning, et cetera, for a couple of decades. And back in 2012, the site for this international project was selected. Uh, many countries competed. And in the end, it was decided that part of it would be built in Australia and part of it in South Africa. Mm. Uh, yeah, so that's the international project. Now, in order to do that, uh, the South African government, the uh, Department of Science and Technology, and SK South Africa, uh, because there was not much history of radio astronomy in South Africa uh, on sort of a world level, uh, they decided to uh, build this, call, this precursor, as, they, as we call it, the uh, Meerkat, uh, a much smaller uh, array than the ultimate international uh, Mir- uh, SKA, but nevertheless still a, a competitive world-class radio telescope. And so that started over a decade ago, uh, this planning through multiple governments, Department of Science and Technology, ministers, et cetera, et cetera. So enormous support, well, vision in the first instance, and then the support. And eventually this was designed and built largely by South Africans. It's, it's entirely a South African project, and roughly three-quarters of the cost are, are spent in the country, uh, in local companies and researchers and so on. So, yeah, the idea, of course, from a science perspective is to understand more about the universe, uh, there's a lot we don't know about the formation of galaxies, you know, how the Milky Way came to be. Uh, galaxies are different throughout the history of the universe, et cetera. So how do we get to be here fundamentally? There are many science cases. But uh, radio astronomy is different than optical, than the ordinary astronomy your listeners may be familiar with. You look through a telescope, collects visible light data. Those telescopes fundamentally record, you know, take a photo with a CCD camera, although, of course, in detail it's more complicated than that. But that's fundamentally it. Radio astronomy, we take uh, radio data that hits all these separate dishes, whether they're 64 or hundreds or thousands, as is conceived for the, the eventual SKA. But individually, there's, there's, there's radio uh, data coming in, the, the, the radio electrical fields, et cetera, radio waves, and then they get converted to data, a lot of data. For instance, for the Meerkat telescope, there are over 200 gigabytes of data per second flowing out of these 64 dishes. And they all have to be combined somehow in a very specialized way. So you need supercomputers. We have some of the fastest computers in Africa right there in the Karoo, within a few kilometers of our dishes. And then after the fact, uh, that, that, that data still gets transported to Cape Town, so huge amounts of data. We have storage arrays in Cape Town that are petabytes in size. That's millions of gigabytes. And all of that has to be analyzed. And it generally takes anywhere from days to weeks to months to generate one of these radio images. So quite apart from the science, which is obviously exciting for those of us who think about these things and investigate, it's really a big data science project. And with all the implications uh, for the scientists, the kinds of data scientists, young South Africans that are being trained, and the engineers who built this. I mean, almost none of this can be purchased anywhere. You have to develop it. You have to invent it. And this project was uh, yeah, designed and built by South Africans, by and large. The engineers are essentially 100% South Africans. Some South African companies that now build the best of certain kinds of, of instrumentation that we had to implement for, for Meerkat, but the best in the world. And they're right here in South Africa now, so it's very exciting. Yeah, it's something to be very proud of, definitely, as a country. 
For sure. I mean, yeah, just to say that these types of telescopes, which you call interferometers, all these separate dishes that, you know, combine the radio data that arrives and make turning into images. There are only a handful of countries around the world that have ever been able to make this type of instrumentation and the usual the usual suspects, you know, the US, mm-hmm. Western European countries, Australia, and now South Africa that joins them with, with an incredibly good telescope. This telescope, you know, there's no such thing as the best telescope in the world. I mean, these <laughs> instruments are very specialized, you know, they have to be. But this is the best telescope in the world for certain things, which is an amazing uh, thing to, to achieve. Mm. And even though Meerkat is planning a lot more work, the launch last week came with already a little bit of a glimpse of what we can expect, a very special image. Tell us about that. Yeah, that was very exciting. Now, this Meerkat, I mean, like I said, it's been in the planning stage of construction for over a decade, but we started building dishes more than two years ago. And two years ago, then Minister Pandora of the Department of Science and Technology she um, she inaugurated well didn't inaugurate the telescope we, we basically had a first light event that she she led this is when we showed the first image with meerkat this was two years ago it only included 16 of the eventual 64 dishes um but uh now we're ready to, with, a, with a full array all 64 so we we were able to do something that had never been done i mean we the scientists that have been waiting patiently for almost a decade to use this telescope They've actually started doing the science with Meerkat. This happened back in April. It's when we finally had 64 dishes working together. Scientists started doing data. They're going about their their job quietly. This takes months to analyze, to write papers, etc. But in the meantime, for this inaugural event, we wanted to do something special if we could. We wanted to, to do something that was scientifically very useful, unique but also iconic from a visual, et cetera, perspective. And we managed to achieve it. So what we wanted to do, what we thought of doing, was to image, to make an image, a radio image of the very center of our galaxy. So we are in this spiral uh, disk galaxy. We we live 30,000 light years away from the center of our galaxy. We on Earth, the sun goes around the center of the galaxy every 200 million years. So these are vast distances and time scales, right? Since the first dinosaurs evolved on Earth, the Earth has gone once around the center of the galaxy. It's a distant place, and it's a very interesting place because there's a massive black hole in there with four million times the mass of our sun. All sorts of unexplained phenomena happen near the center of the galaxy. But unfortunately, we cannot see it with our with our eyes and with telescopes like SALT, uh, also in the Karoo, the, with o- optical telescopes, because there's too much dust between the center of the galaxy and ourselves, mm. and that dust absorbs ordinary light. But radio waves can penetrate that. So, so the, the center of the galaxy is always a very interesting target for, for radio astronomers when they build a telescope. The problem is that for technical reasons that I won't go into, it's very, very difficult to make a proper image of the center of the galaxy with, uh, with, you know, without uh, any artifacts, you know, an image that looks good. And, well, but we thought, well, what the heck, we'll try it. Uh, we were, you know, confident of the capabilities of our telescope. And so back in May, we started thinking about it. We, we did a little bit. We, we liked the results, and we thought, let's go for it. And basically, over the past month, we've been patiently imaging the central regions of our galaxy and making an amazing montage, a mosaic, of the region surrounding the central black hole. And we released this on Friday, and it's the best view, the clearest view ever made by human beings ever of the very center of the Milky Way. Uh, yeah, and so quite apart from the... It's stunning. It's beautifully stunning. I mean, I, 
I'd shown that image a couple of times to people that were, that were not involved with science. They were artists, basically, and they were just stunned by its visual beauty, mm-hmm. uh, even when they didn't know what it was. But once you learn more about it or what it is, of course, uh, most people, I think, get even more excited. And so the key thing to realize is that we will be studying that image for years to come. I mean, there'll be future students in South Africa, MSc students, PhD students, that will write their theses and papers on this data set that underlies the image. It's a lot of data that will have to be analyzed to extract, you know, scientific value from it. But we already see things that, that weren't known before. Uh, and so we can tell that it's going to be very significantly, uh, scientific, it's going to be very significant. But in addition, just, just, just the fact that you, you realize that we've done something here in South Africa that nobody else has been able to do around the world. This is genuinely the best image ever made of the center of the galaxy, a super difficult thing to do. And it has been done through the, you know, the imagination, the vision, the perseverance of, of South Africans uh, at all levels uh, through, throughout the past 10 years. So that's quite stunning. And who knows what else we'll find as all those papers yes. get written and all those data sets get looked at very closely. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. Thank you for raising that because this telescope was not built to make images of the center of our galaxy. I mean, these telescopes, of course, they are, these instruments are designed to do certain specific things that are optimized for them. You cannot go to government or funding agencies and say, listen, give us a bunch of money to build a really cool instrument and then we'll, we'll see what we find. <laughs> that's not how it works. <laughs> you could try, uh, yes. Yeah, exactly. That's not going to work. So, so they're optimized for doing certain kinds of science. So for instance, in the case of Meerkat, it's really optimized, one of the things it's optimized for is to study hydrogen in the universe. Now, hydrogen is the simplest element, as we know, and also it's the most plentiful element in the universe. So stars are mostly made up of hydrogen. In turn, obviously, galaxies are made up of stars, so there's a lot of hydrogen in galaxies, etc. And, well, we know some about it and the cycle of hydrogen forming new stars, uh, being expelled out of galaxies, then being recycled into new generations of stars and so on. But actually, there's a lot we don't know. And, uh, but hydrogen, we can detect it through its radio emission, specific radio emission, but it's very faint. So to detect hydrogen, especially at large distances from the Earth, uh, for, from our own galaxy, you need to build very, very sensitive instruments of a particular kind. And Meerkat was optimized to, to do studies of hydrogen in all sorts of environments throughout the history of the universe. So that is one thing that we believe it will absolutely excel at, and it's built to be the best in the world for that. But this business of the center of the galaxy and the image we made on Friday, it was not built to, it was not optimized to do that really well, and yet it can do it. And so what this already, I think, is beginning to show us, and we're very excited, is that, well, general purpose instruments, let's say, or telescopes of this kind, you know, that, that are optimized for one thing, but can also do other things rather well, what we tend to find many years later is that the most exciting discoveries that came out of them were not necessarily the things they were built for. I mean, one, mm-hmm. one prime example is the Hubble Space Telescope, which is probably the most famous telescope in the world these days, these, these decades, up in space for over 20 years, flying you know, around Earth's orbit. And it was designed to do one very specific thing very well, which is technical I won't go into. And then, several years later, it realized that the universe is not only expanding, which we already knew, but that expansion is accelerating, which seems to make no sense to anybody. And in, in any case, it's the truth. It's what's happening. And that led to a Nobel Prize in physics and so on and so forth. So the Hubble Space Telescope was not designed to do that at all. And yet, so some of the most uh, exciting discoveries that came out of it were things that people hadn't conceived of. Mm. 
So I, I fully expect that 10 years from now, when we're talking about Meerkat, it will do very well, some of the things it was designed for, but we'll have many surprises, I'm sure. And I hope some of those surprises are led by South Africans, because in particular, I'll tell you one thing about how the telescope time is going to be allocated. So back almost 10 years ago, SK South Africa issued an international call for observing proposals from the international community. Yes. Uh, back in 2009, there weren't that many South African radio astronomers. And many projects were submitted. Uh, several were accepted. A few were led by South Africans, but not that many. There just weren't that many South African radio astronomers a decade ago. Well, in the meantime, we've had an extensive human capital development program, lots of students at Bits University and other universities throughout the country. And now we have a lot more South African radio astronomers. And one-third of the telescope time on Meerkat over the next several years is not yet allocated. So two-thirds are allocated to these eight large projects that were selected back in 2010. But the remaining one-third is available. And at the end of this year, we'll issue the first call for proposals. And, of course, we'll be expecting young South Africans who are in high school or <laughs> starting a university uh, 10 years ago that are now young uh, researchers that will propose whatever their ideas are. I don't know what their ideas are use this telescope, and we shall see. And I'm sure they'll be just great, just like their counterparts, their engineers and, and scientists friends have built one of the best telescopes in the world. Mm. What an exciting opportunity, especially as, as we are a, a radio station at a university to think of the generations that can come and step into this project, really a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, not just for the country, but for individuals wanting to learn more about space. And um, hopefully some of the names that will be remembered in relation to Meerkat and SKA will be very South African names. Yeah, I mean, I very much hope so. That would be wonderful. And I just have to tell you, the excitement, I mean, over the past few days, I've heard from many people uh, who were not astronomers, but who heard about it. But even here at the South African Radio Astronomy Observatory, as we're now known, FK South Africa, when I first showed some of these images uh, to some colleagues here last week, uh, some people that were not astronomers or scientists or engineers were walking in the hallway, some people from the HR department and the finance department, and they stuck their heads in, and they saw these images, and they were stunned, and they wanted to know what this was about. So everyone around here is just super proud of you know their contributions uh, to, to the project and to making this a reality. I mean, we need everyone to do their part, whether they're technical people or not. And yeah, the fact that this was achieved, uh, I think, says something about what what people here can do. You know, so mm, yeah. I'm very proud to be. You can probably tell from my accent, I'm not original. I'm not South African. I came here two years ago from the United States because of Meerkat, because already was looking to be such a fantastic thing, mm. and, and I wanted to do my part. But but people here are, are rightly proud of what they've done. I think. I absolutely agree with you. What an amazing project to be observing and a part of as um, as South Africans. We've been speaking to Dr. Fernando Camillo, the chief scientist um, at SKA, working on the Meerkat radio telescope that is already doing some incredible work. And it just speaks to the deepest part of the little child in me that wants to know about the stars and the moon and the galaxies, the what what just an incredible conversation that was um, uh, in seeing what the Meerkat is going to be doing and is already doing. Um, I think an excitement that we can all share. Thank you so much for joining us, Doctor. We are still 
on the science inside next up it's unscience this is the science inside with elma Hello and welcome to the show. If you've just tuned in, my name is Elna Schutz and I'm here with my producer, Bridget LaPera, for Unscience, which is just a little break in the show where we look at something strange, something weird, something wonderful, even though today... I think it's going to be a disgusting one. I think I'm going to be creeped out just a little bit. It's all about cockroaches. Let's get into it. Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. Hi, Elna. So... Tell me, how would you normally kill a cockroach if you were to ever encounter one? Burn down the house. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, is that not the right answer? Um, I, the cockroaches that I have killed in my life probably doom and then some some jumping on them. I'm not the biggest, I, listen, I'm not going to freak out when there's a cockroach. I am an adult, but also... I'm I'm not the first in line not the first in line in my household definitely okay it sounds like you do what um, you know what anybody else would do and you'd you what any um, cockroach loathing person would do really so um, uh, but that is not the case according to Gabriel Tuazen an artist in Pisach Pasich I mean in the Philistines he has had the internet up in arms after what he did to a very nosy cockroach. Okay. Social media users condemned him for animal cruelty, calling him all sorts of names from being a torturer to calling him a monster. The incident started when the cockroach flew into his room and instead of doing what most people would do, he was so grossed out by the conventional way of killing a cockroach that he spent two hours crafting a wooden electric chair for the roach. Excuse me? <laughs> uh, an electrical chair for a cockroach? I really thought that as you were talking there, I was just thinking like, no, it's fine. How bad could it possibly be? How many ways are there to kill a cockroach? You can stomp. You can dance. While stomping, there are really only so many ways. There's four different kinds of doom. That's the end of it, Bridget. But an electrical chair for a cockroach. How much hate does he have to be able to do this? Well, Gabriel lured the cockroach with some food in a plastic bag. And thereafter, he says the ideas came rolling in. He decided to connect the chair to a battery wires, a light bulb, and metal straps. After completing his masterpiece, he strapped the roach down with a metal lid on its head and a metal safety belt to keep the insect from scurrying away. Gabriel then decided to film the entire incident on his mobile phone and for special effects, he played some classical music in the background. And upon flicking on the light switch, the bug was swing twitching from the elect electric 
electric shock. I agree, Gabriel. You have gone too far. Really? I mean, the thing that boggles me about this the most, I think, is that if you want to kill a cockroach normally, you want to just do it as quickly and with as little contact as possible. Like, if you can just, like, throw a brick at it, you probably would. This this meant quite a process of keeping the thing alive, of watching it. There was a process of putting a hat on it. <laughs> who, who, who hates something so much but then is willing to do that? Well... I think the case is not for this actual cockroach. I think it was a showcase to show all the other cockroaches what could happen to them if they should enter his house. Oh, he sent he sent out the video on cockroach WhatsApp or what? <laughs> it was a message to other cockroaches. <laughs> and despite the backlash, the unrepentant Gabriel placed the cockroach in a matchbox coffin. But hey... If this isn't uh, your preferred way of dealing with a cockroach, perhaps I might interest you in a cockroach farm science lab in China. No, Bridget. No. <laughs> the medicinal cockroach farm is the largest in the world, boasting a breed of 6 billion adult cockroaches a year, outnumbering the world's human population. Um... Can I just say, this is just waiting for somebody to create a movie about like a cockroach, like apocalypse, them taking over, becoming the overlords. There are more of them than humans. Bridget, why are you not more worried about this? But um, you did say medicinal. Mm-hmm. So they're breathing cockroaches for medicine. Yes, it's disgusting, I know, but very potent medicine. The cockroaches are the sole ingredient in med- in this medicinal uh, potion. When they have reached the desired weight and size, they are fed into machines and crushed to make the potion. And people in China claim that the tonic significantly aids in curing stomach aches, lung ailments, to even tissue repair. According to the product's packaging, the tonic has a slightly fishy smell, a tea-like color, and tastes slightly sweet. (laughs) The tonic has been used as traditional Chinese medicine for thousands of years. It is reported that more than 40 million patients with respiratory, gastric, and other diseases were cured after taking the potion. I respect... I really do respect... um, whatever somebody wants to take traditionally whatever potions whatever um you know medicines but i can't help thinking that if i knew there were cockroaches in there i'd be like i'm fine guys (laughs) i'm okay being sick i don't need that (laughs) but just let's jump back for a second to the logistics of this Mm -hmm. how do you exactly farm and keep this many cockroaches do you have like little do they each have a name and a bed where they sleep <laughs> how does this work well wow you are you are out there to really ridicule my story right <laughs> well they are kept in long narrowly spaced rows of shelves which are lined with open containers of food and water so you are right partly right the space is warm humid and dark all year round conditions which are favorable for reproduction Mm -mm. they are housed in a multi-story building the size of about two sports fields 
The farm is operated by the the Good Doctor Pharmaceutical Group and the lead zoologist of insect evolution at the Academy of Sciences Sciences in Beijing, Professor Zhu Shaodong, said it would be a catastrophe if the cockroaches were to escape further stating that it would only be through human error or a natural disaster like an earthquake should they escape because the building is managed with artificial intelligence. Mm, Guys, I am going nowhere near this place. Not if you paid me. (laughs) I don't think this story can get any creepier. It's fascinating, but I don't think it can get creepier. But you said they're using AI to protect the cockroaches. They have they have AI robots keeping them in place or something. Correct. Well, not a robot, but some algorithms are involved. The facility's unparalleled security is efficient. Is e- efficiency is partly being controlled by a smart manufacturing system powered by artificial intelligence algorithms. The system constantly collects and analyzes more than. 80, 80 categories of big data, including humidity, temperature, food supply, and consumption. It also monitors changes such as uh, genetic mutations and how these could affect the growing rates of individual cockroaches. You see, that sounds like they're being technologically advanced. I think they just want to farm cockroaches without actually ever having to touch them. Because that's what I hear. Just make the computers deal with them, then they never have to be near the animals or insects. And actually the government says they should be awarded um, an award for how they've been managing the facility so efficiently. And I mean, they have been doing well. I'll give them that. There hasn't been a, a cockroach apocalypse yet. No. And well, my story was uh, sourced from the Daily Mail and the Business Insider. And music is from Orange Orange Sounds and the Sound Bible. Ah, It surely is unusual, unlikely, and science. And I'm glad we made made it through that without any cockroaches in studio. I'm so I'm so creeped out, you guys. It is so creepy to me that there is a giant cockroach farm in China, even though I do understand that if the medicine helps people, okay, maybe we have to do that. <laughs> Keep listening on the science side. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Hello and welcome to The Science Inside. If you just tuned in, we've been talking about space since the Meerkat telescope has been um, launched in, in South Africa very recently. And today we look at an interesting and peculiar subject, the connection between African people and the universe as a whole. The person bringing us the story is Bridget Lepere, our producer. Bridget, what is happening? 
Well, I'm going to show, to share some insights on this topic. And I spoke to Zulu Matabo Zulu, a man who ha- who wears many hats. He is a journalist, a writer, and a graduate of computer science in the field of computing science and mathematics. He has written more than 12 books and produced numerous unpublished manuscripts. Some of the books comprise the Sesotho Dictionary of Mathematics, African Origins of Mathematics, the African Telegraphy and Indigenous Innovation and the important one for today which is the Sacred Knowledge of the Desert African Philosophical Transcendence We've got very strong links the first part being that we trace our genesis to the cosmos as the Africans the cosmos is a source of our knowledge and, and just to make an example of this in Western society philosophy is the ultimate knowledge so when you are doing your doctoral studies, you're going to do something called a PhD, which basically means a doctor of philosophy. So because philosophy is regarded as the ultimate knowledge in that society. Among the Basotho and other Africans, the ultimate knowledge is cosmology. And then philosophy is a subcase of cosmology. What makes African knowledge so different to Western knowledge, according to Zulu, is the methodology, which is based on cosmology. While Western knowledge derives their knowledge and hypothesis on technological instruments such as telescopes, microscopes, etc. Basutu like to talk about a star called Dosa. And in English, Dosa would be Jupiter. And then they have this expression that they like to use a lot that says Dosa Limadinian Iona. When they say Dosa, they are referring to the star Jupiter, and then Madinyana, they are referring to the moons. But what's interesting is that they're describing the moons as babies. It's a very very intimate knowledge, and yet they do not have the instruments that would allow them to see the internals of this particular star. If you, for example, look in the sky and you see Jupiter, you just see a star like any other star. You wouldn't really see that, you know, this particular star has got moons and stuff like that. Now, in Western society, the knowledge of the moons of Jupiter came around through the instruments. Galileo, the Italian astronomer, in the 1600s, he invented a telescope, and through this telescope, he was able to see the moons of Jupiter. And uh, what's interesting in that case is that he only saw four moons, the big moons. He didn't see the, the, these baby moons that they were sort to talk about, which are small moons. And, of course, Russians who have been exploring the space long before anybody else, in terms of their instruments, report that there are like more than 60 moons of Jupiter, and most of these moons are very tiny, which confirms the Basotho knowledge of the cosmos that Jupiter or Dosa has got small moons. Essentially, they trace their genesis to a star system known as Dosa Masiu. So Dosa Masiu is what we would call in English Sirius. And actually, this knowledge is still operational, especially find it a lot among the Bacholoko, Dingaka, African doctors, the concept of divination, the throwing of the bones. Actually, the bones, they are part of the knowledge of the cosmos because the bones, they are a mathematical modeling of the stars. And then the way it works is that if they throw the bones and they need to tell you something that they see there, they'll be looking at 
the the sequence or the configuration of those bones the connection just like like the, like the stars they form some kind of network that concept of the cosmos is also found in the bones as well and you also found in a game called Marabaraba. It's all based on cosmology because Marabaraba is, is a network. So Marabaraba has got something called Lewa. In fact, they, the masters of Marabaraba, for them to be good at it, they have to be good in something called Lewa. And Lewa would basically means the strategic knowledge of science. Lewa basically describes the way the bones fall. In the following, Professor Vishnu Jejela, who specializes in cosmology in the Department of Physics at Wirtz University, explains how the birth of of technology previ- previously, how uh, astronomers viewed planets and other suspicious objects in the sky. People use their eyes. You look up at the sky and you notice, for example, that in the, uh, in the field of stars, there are wandering objects. These wandering objects, these wanderers in the sky, they're the planets. So people track where in the sky the planets are, and they construct models to predict where the planet will be uh, tomorrow, if you, if you know where it is today. And as a result, you track planetary orbits. And people compiled uh, vast quantities of, uh, of data and constructed models. So the original models were um, geocentric. It had the Earth at the center of the universe and uh, the planets and the sun all went around the Earth. But uh, as these models were refined with the invention of the telescope, we found that uh, the solar system is heliocentric rather than geocentric. The sun is the center of the solar system. So the ancient astronomers, they just used their eyes, and they kept good data, and they kept track of where things were, and they um, built models based on this. And the tools have changed, but science still works the same way. We make observations, we build models, and we test those models. And Zulu also carries on on this thought. According to him, the knowledge of cosmology is sacred knowledge passed down from the Bacholoko. People he calls doctoral patricianers of African traditional knowledge, people who have a very strong background in cosmology. Professor Jejela explains the various apparatus that astronomers use today. Well, there are lots of telescopes they use. They use telescopes in different wavelengths now. So originally, telescopes looked at optical wavelengths. We looked at light, which a telescope was gathering. But now we can look in radio wavelengths. We can look in microwave wavelengths. And all of these, these different wavelengths are, are useful for studying you know, different sorts of objects in the sky. So X-ray telescopes, for example, let us study the center of the galaxy. Let us find where black holes are. Radio telescopes... The SKA, which will be built mostly in South Africa, will uh, let us probe the origin of galaxies. Microwave telescopes, they, they look at the cosmic microwave background, a, a bath of uh, radiation that permeates the entire universe. And when you look at the sky in the microwave background, for example, you can see as far back as anyone can see, to 380,000 years ago, years after the Big Bang, when uh, the universe first became transparent to radiation, when light started to uh, travel forever. Because before, the universe is very hot and dense. So light was interacting with stuff and it didn't travel very far. So we can look back and see the imprint of first light in the universe by looking in the microwave. So different wavelengths let us study different physics and uh, different uh, aspects of, of astrophysics are investigated by astronomers today with these uh, modern telescopes. Zulu further elaborates on how the Basutu used 
knowledge learned from the Bachuluku to learn more about the universe. Apparently, African traditional games played like Murabaraba and Diketo are a game of strategy. He adds that the bones used by the traditional user, healers usually reenact the makeup of the cosmos. Essentially, they trace the genesis to a star system known as Dosamasiu. So Dosamasiu is what we would call in English Sirius. And actually, this knowledge is still operational, especially funded a lot among the Bacholoko, Dingnaka, African doctors. The concept of divination, the throwing of the bones. Actually, the bones, they are part of the knowledge of the cosmos because the bones, they are a mathematical modeling of the stars. And then the way it works is that if they throw the bones and they need to tell you something that they see there, they'll be looking at the the sequence or the configuration of those bones. The connection, just like, like, the, like the stars, they form some kind of network. That concept of the cosmos is also found in the bones as well. And you also found in a game called Moravarava. It's all based on cosmology because Moravarava is, is a network. Moravarava has got something called Lewa. In fact, the, the masters of Moravarava, for them to be good at it, they have to be good in something called Lewa. And Lewa would basically means the strategic knowledge of science. Lewa basically describes the way the bones fall. While Zulu says cosmology plays a big role in the lives of African in terms of Africans in terms of farming and their origins, Professor Jejela says the opposite is actually true. It's a very human impulse to come up with an explanation for phenomena we don't understand. So I'm not being derisive. I'm not saying storytelling uh, originated out of the same genesis. But at the same time, astrologers are just making stuff up. It's completely false. It's unscientific. There's no rational basis for any of these suppositions. It's just uh, completely made up. But it's, you know, it's a story that may be satisfying to some people. And if they find comfort in these stories, that's certainly their prerogative. In the following, Zulu explains how water and the universe are all connected and how the Africans have been using this knowledge. A star in Susut is called Naledi. And any word in Susut that, that has got a D inside refers to the water. So, for example, Mothodi, that means a source of water. Lerotodi, that means water. Madi, that means in there is water there. So Naledi also means it has got water. Huidi, in So that read connects the child and the cosmos. Another important fact is that when this child is at the time of that baby, they are going to introduce that child to the moon. And they normally say, it will be a full moon, very clear, very bright. They will say, why wanna hodiela? So in English we say, they say to the child, look at the moon. You see that bright, beautiful moon? That is your peer. Whenever you have troubles, you must speak to the peer. And that gives that connection. And that child will be taught growing up that the moon is the, is the friend. To see if there was any scientific truth to this, we probed by asking Professor Jajula if there is any water on the moon. The moon is made up of the same atoms you see in the periodic table. It's built out of the elements which are abundant. The moon is, is a rock, basically. 
So a lot of it is oxygen, a lot of it is silicon, a lot of it is magnesium, a lot of it is iron. Uh, these are just you know, elements that we have on Earth as well. And the moon is made of uh, similar stuff. People have looked for water on the moon. There may be water in certain dark craters. I don't know if, if that's been confirmed. But um, people have been looking for things like water on the moon. Water is a fairly e easy compound to make. And the elements hydrogen and oxygen are fairly abundant in the universe. So it, it's possible that there is water ice on the moon somewhere. So I don't know about you, Elna. I've um, cross-questioned both, uh, both sciences from the African side and from modern science. And uh, I still haven't decided which one to pick, but I, I guess it's not a matter of picking. It was just a matter of sharing these insights and finding out if there is any truth, scientific truth uh, behind this African knowledge. Yeah, leaving, leaving space for all sides. Yes. You're, you're still on the science side. Stay curious, stay informed, stay on the science inside. It's been a full show tonight, all about space. A big thank you to all of our guests, including Fernando, Camilo, Zulu, Matabo, Zulu and Prof. Vishnu Jitella. Today, our team behind the scenes is production by Bridget Lepere and take by Kuklana Sahame. The podcast is on vits.journalism.coza forward slash science and on iTunes. Social media, it's VowFM, hashtag Science Aside, both on Facebook and Twitter. My name is Alna Schutz and the Science Inside is produced by the Wits Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. We'll be with you again next week. The Science Inside, Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. on OSM 88.1. The Science Inside Podcast.